Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. The Exxon Radio and TV show is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio and TV show or in any manner endorsed by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, Talkstar Radio Network, its affiliated stations, or employees. All Hit Radio. Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Back to the Exxon, everyone. My name is Rob McConnell. Yes, we're coming to you from our snowy studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, where it's minus three degrees and the snow is blowing finally. It looks like winter outside. My gosh. Exxon Nation, my guest this hour is a good friend of the Exxon Nation. Uh, Dr. David Gruder is a clinical and organizational psychologist, an eight award-winning author, a highly sought speaker and trainer, and a uh, trusted advisor to leaders and businesses known as the Merlin of personal relationship and leadership transformation. He is internationally acclaimed as a foremost expert in how to reconnect personality, integrity, and social responsibility with sustainable happiness, health, and prosperity. 
His last book, The New IQ, How Integrity Intelligence Serves You, Your Relationships in Our World, won six awards for its solutions to today's massive deficits in personal, relationship, corporate, governmental, and leadership integrity. The IntegrityMakeover.com website converts that material into a step-by-step self-guided curriculum for integrating your business, your happiness, your health, your prosperity, and ability to make a positive difference in your chosen spheres of influence. Dr. David Gruder also co-authored the just-released Conversations with the King with Elvis Presley's stepbrother, David Stanley. Now, it reveals the lessons that Elvis's life and death taught about the huge dangers of tolerating a gap between our highest awareness and our daily behaviors and provides a powerful roadmap to close the gap in your own life. Joining me now for a return visit here on the Exxon is Dr. David Gruder. And, uh, David, welcome back to the Exxon. Thanks so much, Rob. It's a pleasure to be back with you. It's always great talking to you, David. Uh, congratulations on the many awards that you're winning. And uh, tell us a little bit about your latest book, Conversations with the King. Oh, well, it's really quite an interesting project. Mm-hmm. I was approached by Elvis's uh, stepbrother, David Stanley, uh, because he had a powerful set of experiences growing up in Graceland, uh, which is where Elvis lived. Um, he, uh, David came mm-hmm. to Graceland at the age of four years old when his mother married Elvis's widowed father. And Elvis took David into his arms and, and embraced him as a, as a younger brother, mm-hmm. about a 20-year age difference between the two of them. Right. And uh, it, what, what David experienced behind closed doors was a very, very different Elvis from the public Elvis. Um, this, this private Elvis was a mystic and a healer, uh, and he also grappled with his own inner demons uh, as well, which uh, which I think ultimately contributed to his uh, his um, early demise. Uh, and it turns out that David was really trying to make sense of the powerful experiences he had with Elvis the human being. Uh, and uh, what emerged from that project was uh, something that I think applies to all of us. Uh, and the book goes into this in great detail, which is that all of us have a public self, Mm-hmm. We have a uh, a more private, authentic self that contains aspects of us that are truly authentic that we don't necessarily share publicly. And then we have a dark, private self as well that uh, that is the parts of us that we feel angry and resentful and frustrated about not feeling like we can present publicly. Uh, and the stresses between those three selves, mm-hmm. the, the sanitized public self, the dark private self, and the authentic self, uh, really tore Elvis apart. All right, and David, stand by. We've got to take, we've got to take a commercial break. We'll be back in two minutes. Exonation Dr. David Gruder is our special guest. And we'll be back with David on the other side of this commercial break in two minutes as the Exxon continues with yours truly, Rob McConnell, here in the Exxon.
Exonation, uh, Dr. David Gruder is our special guest this hour. And uh, here's some websites for Dr. Gruder, www.integrityrevolution.com. That's www.integrityrevolution.com, www.integritymakeover.com. That's integritymakeover.com. Another one is thethrillofbusiness.com. And the final one is integritypledge.org. Uh, David, before we go into the commercial break, we were talking about uh, the new book that you've co-authored um, entitled Conversations with the King. And um, do we all share the same aspects that, that you're describing with within your book Conversations with the King? Do we all have those separate little entities within ourselves? Yeah, I think we all do. Uh, we have, we have that sanitized public self mm-hmm. and the dark private self and the, and the fully authentic spiritual self that are in tension with each other. And I know I've struggled with this. Uh, I learned a bunch about myself in co-authoring conversations with the king. Um, and one of the things that fascinates me about this book is that it may be the first book in a new genre of books that, that allows a, private glimpse into public figures at a level where uh, where uh, it's it's a public figures uh, profile meets the self-improvement um, genre so it's a combination kind of book of mm. biography secret biography plus self-improvement how can the life of Elvis and what you've written about in your uh, co-authored in your new book help each and every one of us in our daily lives? Right. Well, one of the things that was really wonderful about this is that it mixed the stories of uh, of what David experienced and, and uh, struggled over with in his relationship with Elvis with our own uh, personal development. And there are exercises at the end of each chapter for the reader to apply the lessons of that chapter to their own lives. Uh, and I think for me, one of the biggest lessons is uh, is about the ways in which I've used my public self or confused mm. my public self with my authentic self because I spent so much of my life being an expert and an authority uh, that I uh, that I actually uh, lost track of parts of my authenticity uh, which I, uh, I I just neglect. Um, in ways that I hadn't realized until co-authoring conversations with the king. And I think that's true of a lot of us. What was it that you found most startling doing the research uh, on Elvis for your new book uh, that you just, you, you were blown away by? I think what I was most blown away by was uh, was this. I I not have been a fan of Elvis's music, so I was never an Elvis follower in that sense. Uh, I obviously, like everyone else in the world, if you say Elvis, there's only one Elvis that most people think of, and that's Elvis Presley. Um, and so I knew about Elvis mm-hmm. Presley, but I hadn't followed him. And what I didn't know about him was how deep and profound a spiritual seeker he was. He, uh, by his bed, apparently always had tons of books around him. The Bible was his centerpiece. Uh, and he was very clearly inside himself identified as a as a Christian and devoted to the Bible, devoted to God. Um, but he was surrounded by all kinds of metaphysical books like Autobiography, the Yogi by 
Paramahansa Yogananda and uh, and other books that that we actually talk about in conversations with the king. Uh, and uh, the, his handlers, Elvis's handlers, believed that if word got out to the public that Elvis's spiritual explorations went beyond conventional, traditional, orthodox, dogmatic Christianity, that he ran the risk of losing a sizable portion of his fan base. Unreal. And so they squelched that in him. How do you think squelching that within a, you know that is so important to a person actually affects them psychologically does it does it suppress their entire being yes it actually does and so many public figures have experienced this whether in entertainment or athletics mm-hmm. or politics uh where where they feel like they become enslaved to their icon status or their public image um, and people in corporate uh, uh, CEO kinds of roles sometimes feel that way too, and uh, and Elvis felt that kind of squelching to the point where he ended up resorting more and more to the use of anesthesia, prescription medication. In his case, he became mm-hmm. an addict to prescription medications thanks to his doctors, uh, very much like Michael, Michael Jackson. Michael yeah. Jackson. Absolutely. He was the prototype before Michael Jackson. And the anesthesias were in large part because uh, he was frustrated at not being able to be his full self out in his life. Uh, and it, that, it, it takes that toll on all of us. I know that was true with my father, for instance. I mean, he was a very upstanding, ethical man who was beloved at work and in his community and did lots of good in the world. But he was so short he fell so short of being his full authentic self that behind closed doors he was a rageaholic he was really very shaming uh frightening man for my brother and me and my mother when i w- when my brother and i were children uh and this was a very different dark private self from my father's public self and the same thing happened with with elvis he was on one hand a mystic and a healer behind closed doors and on the other hand he could be a real terror too mm. As a psychologist, do you see a lot of parallels between Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson, and other members of the entertainment media? Very, very much so. In fact, I truly hope that Conversations with the King starts to serve as a guidebook for people in the public eye, whether in entertainment or other uh, other high-profile um, um professions if you will but uh yes uh, very much so because this the Elvis was essentially a prototype i mean he was a prototype for a new wave of personal development mm-hmm. that uh that people in show business in particular really need to pay attention to uh where they need to find a strategy to allow themselves to not become trapped and and enslaved inside of their public persona so that they don't activate this dark shadowy private self that becomes incredibly self-destructive why do you think doctor we the public seem to be demanding more and more and more from those that we look up to within the 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 entertainment entertainment media why do we always demand more well i truly believe rob that we're in an age where people are starved for role models and when we don't have positive role models, when we don't have truly a positive as, as in auth- fully authentic role models, 
then what we do is, is, as human beings is we tend to idealize. We tend to invent people into being more than they actually are. And, of course, in show business, that's a particular um, risk because actors play roles in their movies or television shows that are usually very different from who those actors are as human beings, and yet sometimes those roles, especially if they're superhuman uh, kinds of roles, uh, hero roles or mm-hmm. uh, or upstanding roles, uh, they uh, the public gloms on to those roles because they're thirsty for role models, and then they expect the actor as a human being to be the person with the morals and the ethics of the character they may be playing. So not only are we looking at the actor as a source of entertainment, but we're also looking them to be our heroes in real life? Yeah, we are, and I think we do that because most of us don't have really positive enough role models in our real lives that we want to emulate ourselves after. Will this explain why so many people flock to sports arenas to watch two teams go at each other? They pay, they're paid crazy salaries as far as I'm concerned, and yet people are paying two, three, four, five hundred dollars an evening to go see them battle out these sports. Yeah, I, it's, uh, it's really shocking to me as well, although, of course, this has been a tradition in humanity for thousands of years. Think mm-hmm. about the Romans and the Colosseum right. and the gladiator fights. Uh, there's something about watching other people uh, harm each other or outsmart each other that, uh, that enables a lot of people to, uh, to feel like that part of them that they don't feel like they can act out in their lives to be... Um, to be expressed through the people that they're paying to do that for them. So it seems that we have a natural thirst to live vicariously through other people's lives, whether it's in the sporting arena, whether it's on the big screen, or even in these so-called reality TV shows, for example, Hoarders, or this bounty hunter that goes out looking for people, or Storage Wars. What is wrong with society? Well, you put it Perfectly, Rob, uh, that we are, uh, a lot of people are living vicariously, and the reason that anybody seeks to live vicariously is because they are out of touch with or are uh, feel, ashamed, feel ashamed of their authentic spiritual self. And when people don't feel free to express and embody their authentic self, then they look for substitutes. They become a substitute self themselves, and they look for uh, for vicarious pleasure uh, through others uh, uh, on television or in movies uh, or in books, etc., etc., uh, because they're not allowing themselves to be in full authentic expression. People who are in full authentic expression, Rob, don't look for vicarious pleasure because they don't need it. That's right. Doctor, please stand by. Always great talking to you, David. Exonation, uh, Dr. David Gruder is my special guest this hour. Here's uh, some websites www.integrityrevolution.com, www.integritymakeover.com, www.thethrillofbusiness.com, and www.integritypledge.com. And uh, Dr. David Gruder has a new book out. It's it's entitled uh, Conversations with the King. For all you Elvis fans, I'm sure that this is one book you'll want in your libraries. 
I'll be back on the other side of this news break with Dr. David Gruder as the Exxon continues with yours truly, Rob McConnell, from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. My name is Michael Telstar, Canada's leading mentalist from Toronto, Ontario. Hi, my name is Lorenza, and you're listening to my dad, Rob McConnell, on the XM. This is Psychic Dorothy from St. Catharines, and you're listening to Rob McConnell. Hello, my name is Holly Reeves, an astrologer from Astro for You, and you're listening to Canada's number one paranormal radio show, The X Zone, with Rob McConnell. Welcome to The X Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Explanation. Uh, Dr. David Gruder is my special guest. Uh, here's a couple of websites. IntegrityRevolution.com, IntegrityMakeover.com, TheThrillOfBusiness.com, and IntegrityPledge.org. David, uh, there are some rather sad shows on the so-called reality TV um, media these days. One is Hoarders. When somebody watches a program that 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 depicts this poor person who is a hoarder they're living in squalor their their house is a mess uh they are eating bacteria laced food there is uh, animal feces and human excrement in diapers all over the place what does this tell us about the person that really gets into this kind of show are they saying ha it's i'm not as you know is this their way of picking themselves up psychologically by saying this person is worse off than i am I think for some who watch those kinds of shows, that's exactly right. They, they are, their self-esteem is mm-hmm. so weak in the first place that they need to watch people who are so horribly worse off than they are in order for them to feel better as human beings. Uh, I think there are others who recognize that in shows like, uh, like Hoarders, they're actually seeing themselves in a far more dramatic and extreme form than they actually live uh, uh, personally, uh, such a, uh, because, you know, there are an awful lot of people out there who are hoarders right. to one extent or another, you know? And, uh, and that's, that's the challenge, uh, that, uh, that some people feel when they watch a show like that is can a show like that motivate them into doing less hoarding themselves? Okay, so it's a self-help kind of program for some. For some, for some. Yeah. 
For others, it's a substitute for their own self-esteem because they don't know how to create their own internal well-being uh, except by uh, by making themselves feel better by watching people who are so uh, worse off than them that they can judge those other people harshly. I would imagine as a psychologist you can tell a lot about a person by what kind of television shows they watch or what kind of music they listen to. I can tell a lot by how by what people watch and what people listen to and even more by uh, by what they tell me about why they watch those things right. or listen to those things. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. The last time you and I talked, uh, we, we scratched the surface on social networking and I'd like to talk to you about that because social networking has taken off in leaps and bounds, everyone has a little uh, iPad or a, or a texting uh, apparatus. Nobody talks anymore. People are texting, whether they're in the restaurant, whether they're in the library, whether they're in school. What is behind the psychological success of texting and so and the social mm. medias? Well, let's look at the light side of this before okay. we look at the dark side of it. Um, all of us. As, as you know, I, uh, my study of sustainably happy people has shown me that we all have three core drives, the drive mm-hmm. to be who we truly are, which is authenticity, the, the drive to bond with others, which is connection, and the drive to influence the world around us, which is impact. And so that connection core drive, the second of those three core drives, is built into all of us. And so we're constantly as human beings and as humanity searching for new ways to express our connection core mm-hmm. drive. And being that we live in a world in which uh, we're so global now and, uh, and so Internet-centric, we're naturally, on the, on the high side of this issue, searching for additional ways to create and maintain connection that, that hadn't been available to us in the past. So I think that's the light side of this picture. All right, let's look at the dark side of this picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's where I think it starts to get juicy because in, in point of fact, anything in this world can and has been used as an anesthesia if that's the intent. If, the, if a person has an intent to numb themselves out or avoid or, uh, or uh, not feel their feelings or not face their issues, then they can use anything in the whole wide world uh, for anesthetic purposes, from reading to eating to sleeping to, um, to texting <laughs> and, uh, and social networking. And so I think that there's something inherently, there are certain types of anesthesias that are inherently um, uh, more inviting toward addiction than other types of, uh, of anesthesias. Mm-hmm. And there's something about texting that is is very powerful for people because it takes them into a world that brings them away from their their real world, their their everyday uh, here and now world. And people who become very obsessed with virtual worlds are people who are essentially trying to tell themselves that their own uh, flesh and blood world is not fulfilling to them uh, in ways that they need. And instead of facing that and doing something about that, they end up losing themselves into a virtual world instead. But how, how, how dangerous is it 
if a person keeps on going into the virtual world, can they actually lose themselves in the virtual world and shun away from reality? Oh, yes, very, very much so. Uh, I think that's part of the warning of movies like The Matrix, for mm-hmm. example, um, that we can get so lost in, in virtual worlds that we create that we forget that we're even lost. Yeah. Like when you go out and you see people sitting at a restaurant table and instead of talking to each other like they used to, everybody's on their little cell phone texting. Or when you, where family members meet. They are talking, yeah. they, they, they say, just a minute, I, I've got a text. Well, wait a minute, you know, what is going on here? To me, these are danger right. signs. They are. They're huge danger signs. They're signs that the tail is wagging the dog. Right. Because these devices can be, if, the, if, that's our, if it's our intention to use them this way, these devices can be incredibly useful aids for relationships, for communication, for conducting business, mm-hmm. uh, all kinds of things. But when the, uh, the texting, for example, takes priority over the person who's in front of me, then what I'm really saying to myself and the person in front of me is I don't really want deep connection. I want the shallower connection that I can have through texting or through answering the cell phone um, instead of letting the the call go to voicemail Mm. so that I can continue to maintain and deepen my connection with the person in front of me. Yeah, it is a danger sign. And and what about the aspect that everyone is now using a cell phone instead of a landline phone and that people are accessible anywhere in the world 24 hours a day? Are there any psychological dangers with this, in your opinion? Oh, yes, yes. I've experienced some of those dangers personally, actually. Um, I, I was a slow adopter, and I, I tend to be. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm a, on the one hand, I'm a closet geek. I, I stay on top of new technological sure. developments. And on the other hand, I'm a slow adopter. I'm very slow to actually um, purchase things. So I was, uh, I was a late adopter in, in getting a cell phone. I was a late adopter in getting an iPad. I have these things now. But uh, part of why I realize that I've been a late adopter is because I can get obsessed with technology. And so uh, I had to uh, actually learn that, uh, that it was okay for me to have boundaries with my cell phone in that just because I am accessible far more than ever before because people can reach me on my cell phone, it doesn't mean that when my cell phone rings, I am obligated to answer Mm -hmm. it. And that sounds very, very simple. But honestly, it took me a while to really master those boundaries. They didn't come naturally for me in the the beginning. You know, when, when parents tell me that they give their young children cell phones because it makes them feel better that they have access to calling their parents or calling the police or whatever. To me, that is saying that that parent is shunning off their responsibility as a parent and allowing technology to take over the parent's place. Well, I think that that's absolutely true in in the case of certain parents. Mm -hmm. In the case of other parents, I think they they use that rationalization in order to justify uh, how they they don't want their child to feel left out by all the peer pressure of of all their uh, their friends having a cell phone, but they don't have a cell phone. Uh, And I think uh, on another level, really 
well developed and and mature and capable and and bonded and uh, uh, parents. Uh, some of those parents really do appreciate the gifts and the benefits that new technologies can potentially offer to them. And offering their child those technologies aren't a substitute for good parenting. Unfortunately, I think that's more the exception than the rule yeah. today. It, it seems that technology is replacing parental attention and parental guidance in a lot of cases. It's easier to sit the child down in front of the uh, the uh, electronic entertainment unit, whether it's, uh, what are they called? Um, uh, side, Xbox. Xbox or like whatever, that. and these, these, these video games will let him or her do whatever she wants to do on the, on the personal computer, or instead of saying, go outside, play, get some fresh air, you know, like, what are we doing? Well, what we're doing is what we've been doing for a couple of generations now. I mean, uh, back back in the day, the substitute babysitter was the television, yeah. right? And then it was the computer and uh, and uh, the early gaming systems, and uh, and now it's the internet and texting and cell phones and uh, and yeah. I mean, we've we've been struggling with this very issue uh, around personal alienation and, and lack of deep emotional bonding for a couple of decades now, a few decades now. But are, do, you see, do you foresee any psychological dangers with too much abuse, uh, too, I should say too much use of, of texting and neglecting the very necessity interpersonal skills that people need in order to succeed, whether it's in school, business, or society? Well, that is exactly one of the big risks, is that when people use uh, these watered-down versions of connection mm -hmm. as substitutes for true, deep, um, live, face-to-face -face connection, what they don't learn is the intimacy skills, the sustainable relationship skills, uh, problem-solving skills, uh, and um, things along those lines. Um, and and yet, on the other hand, the millennial generation, the current the current generation of kids that are that are entering into adulthood, they are uh, they are really surpassing us old fogies in terms of their capacity to develop creative outside the box solutions to different kinds of problems, and they attribute their ability to do that to all of the virtual world playing that they've done because they uh, they don't feel beholden to the status quo. They don't feel beholden to thinking or acting inside the box. Well, hypothetically... So the double-edged sword. Well, hypothetically, let's say that the poles did shift. Negative became positive, positive became negative. None of these electronic gizmos would work. What would mm -hmm. happen to them? They'd be lost. <laughs> They'd be lost. You're quite right. A lot of people would be lost, and not just... Not just these kids, but mm -hmm. think think also, Rob, about how many businesses are uh, are electronic dependent in order to stay in touch with their teams, sure. uh, their customers. Uh, the the amount of upheaval that we would experience if we had a devastating solar flare uh, impact on uh, on the uh, ionosphere. Um, uh, knocking out satellites or a polar shift or things along right. those lines could be massive. Which I mean, scientists are telling us is a very likely possibility. Mm -hmm. and, and yet, technology has not made any 
concessions for this to happen. And people are not making, well, not very many people are making concessions or emergency plans for this eventuality. People are saying, well, it you know, it's, it's going to be a sad day when that does happen. If it happens, personally, I hope it doesn't. But I would hope that people are preparing themselves for the what-if factor in life. Well, you know, there's an old saying. I don't know if, I, if I've ever shared it with you, and I, I don't know who to attribute it to because when it came to me, it was anonymous. Mm-hmm. And the saying is, mostly people change not because they see the light, but because they feel the heat. I like that. David, stand by, my friend. You and I have to take our final break. Exo Nation, Dr. David Gruder is our special guest. Here's a couple of websites. IntegrityRevolution.com IntegrityMakeover.com TheThrillOfBusiness.com and IntegrityPledge.org And if you'd like to send me an email blasting me for my outlook on technology and how, it's ta- how in my opinion, it's turning society against society, Exonet, exonradiotv.com. I'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. Geez, I wonder if they were singing about uh, J. Edgar Hoover when he wore slips. I don't know. Exxon Nation, uh, Dr. David Gruder is my special guest. Uh, as always, David, great talking to you. One last question. We've got about uh, three minutes left on the clock. Why are there so many people involved in the end-of-the-world scenario that the Mayans are saying, hey, we never said that. All we said that it was the end of our calendar. You know, like... Yeah, you, exactly. You know, so, so why are there so many people that are that are actually getting so in, 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 involved in this. And in fact, I, you know, I look at the, I look at Mexico and Guatemala now seeing they're saying, Hey, this is going to be a tourist mecca. We're going to cash in on this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why do people, yeah. why do well, people go for the end of the world scenario? Uh, they've gone for the end of the world scenario for time immemorial. I mean, the world was going to end uh, at the turn of the 19th century to yep. the 20th century, and then there was Y2K, the mm. 20th century to the 21st century. You know, fr- frankly, some of us just respond to deadlines, and some of us mischannel our wish for transformation. So we we put our hope in uh, that that some cataclysm is going to create the transformation of humanity or of ourselves that we want. And some people uh, just want an excuse to not take responsibility for their lives. So if the world is going to end, they don't have to be responsible for themselves. But what happens action. to those people who who really believe the world is going to come to an end and come the 1st of January 2013, they look back and they say, uh-oh, how devastating psychologically is this for them? 
Well, depending on how invested they were in believing the world was going to come to an end, uh, the, the, uh, when the apocalyptic vision doesn't come to pass, they feel like the rug's been pulled out of them uh, from under them mm-hmm. and that their sense of, of religion or God or spirituality has been betrayed. Any words, any, any words of wisdom for the listeners for this year 2012, Doctor? Uh, well, uh, actually, I think that 2012 is... Uh, is supposed to be mystically a year of uh, uh, and a period of transformation, and we are going through a huge transformation in humanity. But the challenge here is let's become the change that we want to see in the world rather than rail against what's wrong in the world as a substitute for doing the change ourselves. And where can listeners get the books that we've been talking about today here on the show? Sure. You can get Conversations with the King at conversationswiththeking.com. It will soon be available at uh, online and, uh, and brick-and-mortar book uh, vendors near you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the meantime, conversationswiththeking.com, and you can get the new IQ at thenewiq.com, along with its accompanying workbook. As always, David, great talking to you, and I look forward to having the opportunity of speaking to you much sooner in this year 2012. Likewise, Rob. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Take care, my friend. Exonation Dr. David Gruder has been my guest to this hour. Once again, www.integrityrevolution.com. That's www.integrityrevolution.com. www.integritymakeover.com. www.thethrillofbusiness.com. And www.integritypledge.com. Dot O-R-G. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break at six with uh, at six. Uh, let's try this one again. Mouth going one way, brain going the other. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news at six and a half minutes past the hour, as the Exxon continues from the snowy studios of the Exxon here in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. My name is Rob McConnell. We'll be back after the news. Don't go away. <laughs> 